Good morning again and welcome. This morning we're continuing with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, picking up with verse 1 of chapter 4 and working through to the end of that chapter. In our most recent studies of this letter, we spent some time looking carefully at Paul's teachings on the righteousness of God, found in Romans 3, 21 to 26. And in looking at those verses, we saw that by this phrase, Paul is referring to the right standing with God that sinners receive on account of their being credited with the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. Well, after spending a few weeks unpacking all of that, we then looked at the next section, which is Romans 3, 27 to 31, where Paul addresses some real or at least anticipated questions or criticisms that would have been voiced in response to the things that he's saying about the righteousness of God. The bulk of those questions probably coming from his Jewish colleagues. And then following that, it would seem that here in chapter 4, Paul is supplementing all that he's been saying uh, recently in Romans by supplying some examples from the Old Testament scriptures, choosing as his reference point two uh, crucial, pivotal figures uh, to to do so. One of them being Abraham, who is, as one writer puts it, Israel's most illustrious patriarch, and the other one being David, Israel's most illustrious king. Now, he mostly talks about Abraham here in chapter 4 and has a, maybe a brief reference to David. And so for our purposes this morning, uh, we never say anything that could be said, any, uh, everything that could be said anyway. So we're going to focus on Abraham in these verses this morning. Well, the question before we even do that is to ask, why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul giving so much attention to Abraham? I'll tell you why I think he's doing it. If you were to go back and read the Jewish literature of the day. Not the biblical writings uh, that are that the Jewish literature is in the Old Testament literature, but the Jewish literature of the day, the rabbinic literature, the things written by various rabbis and other Jewish religious leaders. If you were to read through that literature, you would see that the Jewish people had this amazingly high regard for the person of Abraham And they really spoke about him as kind of the quintessential Jewish man. Abraham, in their view, was a man who actually did impress God with his works and obedience. He was the man. That is how they spoke about him. That is how they wrote about him. That is how they saw him as a man who had merited the blessing of God. It's very clear in the rabbinic literature. And Paul knows all this. Because Paul drank deeply of that well for a significant part of his life. In the first three chapters of of this letter where Paul drives home the universal uh, unrighteousness of of all humanity or Paul's crystal clear exposition of the fact that now he knows better than that. But he once drank deeply of that well. So Paul has a more realistic and sober assessment of Abraham now, one that's in line with scriptures, but he knows that not all of his readers do. Not all of them share that view just yet, and so Paul knows that if he wants to get through to them, if he wants to connect with them, he has to deal with Abraham. And if he wants to establish the truth of justification by faith, uh, of being made right with God by grace through faith, and not works, he's going to have to show how that truth applied even to Abraham, which is part of what he's doing in this chapter. 
Now, Paul's approach to all this, as Stott has helpfully shown, is to basically reconfirm three ways that Abraham was not justified before God before finally talking about how Abraham was justified before God and what difference that makes for all of us. Uh, That really is the structure, the big picture structure of this chapter. And uh, that's what we're going to look at together this morning before we do uh, that. Let's pray together and then we'll hear from part of the passage. Great Father in heaven, thank you for loving us as you have and in the specific matter of being so kind as to speak to us and to fill in for us what would be a lot of blanks if you had not spoken. Thank you for giving us enough information and enough clarity and enough revelation to know what you are about and where you're going and what part we have to play in any of that. Help us then to listen carefully to this portion of what you've said this morning and to know how it impacts us individually and as a community. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and his kingdom. Amen. Well, listen now to God's word from Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now there's a lot in these verses that we won't be commenting on, but I think one of the main things to be seen here is a very clear statement that Abraham was not justified. He was not justified. He was not declared to be right in God's eyes as a result of his own works. That is, as a result of his doing something that gained him favor, that got him some leverage with God, or somehow put God in a position of owing him something. Now, a little further on in this passage, Paul's going to talk about how Abraham was not justified by having the law, or adhering to the law, which we'll say more about when we get to it. But if he talks about the law later on, then it would be fair to ask the question here, What does Paul have in mind when he talks about works? Is that just another way of referring to law-keeping, or is there something else in mind here? The answer, I think, is that Paul at this point has in view not the law, the formal law per se, but those instances in Abraham's life where God revealed himself to him or instructed him, and Abraham, because of that, had an opportunity as a result of that revelation, to respond to God in a way that showed that he trusted him or otherwise. Now, it may be that Paul's not making that fine of a distinction, but it seems reasonable that he might be, and that's the angle I'm going to go with this morning. So what kind of works do I, uh, am I thinking of here? Uh, and uh, one example of that would be early in Abraham's story, chapter 12 of Genesis, when God first came to him and informed him of his decision Out of the blue, God comes to him and says he's going to bless him. 
And he's going to make his name great. He's going to be his God, etc. And when God did that, he just instructed Abraham out of the blue to pack up his things, get going to this new place where God was going to lead him. And Abraham did it. He just packed up and he left. And that, when you think about it, it's kind of crazy stuff. I mean, Abraham had no idea what God was doing. In fact, up until then, he likely would have been worshipping or at least observing another religion. The religion of his father, Terah, which would have been some form of pagan religion. And yet God comes to Abraham anyway in the midst of his paganism and simply informs him of his decision to be gracious and kind and to bless him and tells him to pack his bags. And again, he does. He packs his bags and he goes. And in doing that kind of thing, Abraham wasn't following any kind of law or written code. He was just being responsive to the revelation he received. On another occasion, much, much later in his life, Abraham was instructed by God to take his son, his only son, for whom he'd waited and prayed for a long time, and offer him up as a sacrifice. And so Abraham had this crazy situation, right, where on the one hand he'd been told that he'd be the father of many nations, and on the other hand he'd been told by God who made that promise to take this, uh, the only possible means of that promise being fulfilled, his only son, and sacrifice him. So what does he do in this crazy situation? Yes, you're going to be the father of many nations. By the way, go sacrifice your son. How to deal with that tension. But, well, Abraham had to believe that God hadn't forgotten his promise. That's what he had to do. He had to believe that God hadn't lost his mind. He had to believe that God knew what he was doing. He had to believe that even if he went through with this gruesome task, God could or would raise his son from the dead if he needed to. But he had to hold these kinds of things in tension, things that he couldn't fully work out. He couldn't see far enough down the road to have any idea how God was going to make that happen or make that work. And he had to believe it enough to act on it, and he did. And so he picks up this knife, and he's going to go through with it until God stops him. And yet as remarkable as Abraham's faith was, as these works were, it was still nothing that merited the favor of God. Because in both of those instances just described, Abraham was already the recipient of God's blessing and favor. God had already moved in Abraham's life. It had already been established in his life. He'd already determined to bless Abraham for reasons that had nothing to do with Abraham. Now you have to keep in mind that in the first three chapters as we've seen of this letter, uh, Paul's already established this fact, right, of the universal unrighteousness of humanity. And he's shown that as a consequence, the entire human race is condemned before the bar of God's justice and is deserving of his completely appropriate wrath against sin. And it's only by God's grace that we do not receive the punishment we so clearly deserve. Which is to say, all the faithfulness in the world on Abraham's part does not erase the fact that he too is to be accounted amongst the unrighteous. Now, Paul could have explicitly referenced that point, again, here, at this point in his letter. But interestingly enough, while that is true, he could have done that, he doesn't do it. 
It's not the reason that Paul gives a support for his contention that Abraham was not justified by works. He gives another reason for it. It's seen there in verses 2 to 5. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The reason Paul gives in support of his contention that Abraham was not justified by works is simply the fact that the Bible says otherwise. He starts out as if he's going to entertain a hypothetical notion, that is, the possibility that Abraham might somehow justify himself by his own works and as a result would have something to boast about before God. But before he can barely get these hypothetical, this notion out of his mouth, he follows up immediately with this flat denial that Abraham has anything to boast about before God. And why is that? What reason does Paul give specifically to back up his claim there? Simply put, he says, Abraham cannot boast of his works before God because the scriptures say his standing with God came about in another way that had nothing to do with works. That's it. That's the reason. Because the Bible tells him so. Because the scriptures say so. Because the Bible doesn't say that Abraham was justified by his works. It says that he believed God and that it, that believing, was credited to him as righteousness. Now later on we're going to talk about this connection between believing and being credited with righteousness. But for now I don't want you to miss the importance of the appeal to scripture here. There are at least two things I draw your attention to in that. Firstly, Paul clearly has this high, high view of the scriptures. He sees them as authoritative. He sees them as the final answer, the ultimate court of appeal, over against a cultural context where he's dealing with some very wrong-headed notions about Abraham's ability to justify himself by his works. Paul's approach is to ask, what does the Scripture say? Why? Because for Paul, God's Word is so true. It's so true that it trumps everything else. It's the place where you start in your thinking. And then along with that, notice how when Paul might have used a past tense and asked what was written in the scriptures, he noticeably does not. Instead, he uses the present tense and asks what the scriptures say. In other words, he seems to see the scriptures as this living, continuing, still speaking into the present word of God. God is still speaking. What do the scriptures say? He's still speaking right now through them. And the implications for God's people just here are enormous and are well worth spending some time reflecting upon more than we're going to spend. But the importance, the value of the question, what does the scripture say? That cannot be overstated. The significance of seeing the scriptures as the place where God is still speaking today. That's huge. The value of God's word being for us the first port of call cannot be measured. God's word for God's people ought to be the starting point for every consideration, every question, every argument, every plan, every hope every projection, every fearful moment, as we face every danger or uncertainty, we have a sure 
word from the Lord. It's timeless and it's true. It's not a voice in our head. It's not an impression. It's not a notion. It's His Word. It's written. And it's completely reliable. What does the Scripture say? That was Paul's question. And it is a question that should fall frequently from our own lips. Returning to the passage, in addition to showing that Abraham was not justified by works, Paul goes a little further to show how neither was he justified, made right with God by the specific work of circumcision. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So as those verses, uh, I think, make fairly clear, Abraham was not justified. He did not gain a right standing with God because he was circumcised or by means of that circumcision. And the plain obvious reason for this conclusion is simply that Abraham had been chosen by God. He'd been set apart for blessing by God long before he was ever circumcised. In fact, at least 14 years before, possibly longer. And so since the sign of circumcision came after he'd been set apart and blessed by God, it cannot be something that could be said to have conferred anything upon Abraham. But rather, it's a sign of something that had already been conferred upon him. It's like the difference between promoting someone to a new rank and recognizing someone as a hero. If you promote a captain to a major or a major to a lieutenant colonel, you adorn their uniform with a different insignia and you confer a new rank and standing upon them in that action. But if you pin the Medal of Honor upon a soldier, you are not by that action bestowing the status of hero upon him or her you are simply recognizing something that's already true about him or her. Namely, that he or she acted heroically, was already that sort of person long before the medal was pinned on. Abraham received, receiving the sign of circumcision is more like that. It's a sign given in recognition of something that was already true, namely that Abraham belonged to God, that he'd been set apart for blessing and mercy by God. And as the passage indicates, the effect of God's doing things in this way was to make Abraham the father of two classes of people. He's the father of all who believe and are not circumcised. Uh, when Abraham first came, when God first came to Abraham, he didn't belong to a chosen race because there was none. When God first came to Abraham, he was most likely a devotee of another religion. When God came to Abraham, he was not circumcised. He had none of the trappings of the Hebrew faith and culture. Ironically, the very people that so many of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters would look condescendingly upon in Paul's day, that's what Abraham once was. That's what he was when God first called him. 
And as such, he's perfectly suited as the father of all those in Paul's day and in every age who respond to God's call in the same circumstances, that is, as non-Jews, as those who either had no religion or a pagan one, as those who bore no signs of belonging to God's covenant people. But if he's perfectly suited as the father of all those who are uncircumcised, he's also perfectly suited as the father of all those who are more than just circumcised. In other words, he's the father of all those who, while bearing the marks and so belonging to the visible community of God's people, are not distinguished merely by the bearing of those marks, but more importantly by the evidence of faith, by the manner in which they demonstrate their trust and their confidence in God, the choices they make, the steps they choose, as well as the things they avoid. In other words, he's the father of those who show that they truly are trusting in God and not in other things, even good things like circumcision, as the ground of their righteousness. So rather than being a source of division and exclusivity as he had become in the hands of so many in Paul's day, the person of Abraham really is one who served or should have served to show not the narrowness of God's mercy, but actually the breadth of God's mercy the wideness of his mercy. There's actually a picture of the truth that the essential factor in being identified amongst the people of God was faith. Not ethnicity, not culture, not being part of a certain bloodline or heritage. Well, thus far we've seen how Paul's use of the example of Abraham in chapter 4 supported what he's been saying about the righteousness of God in chapter 3 demonstrating that Abraham was not justified by works in general, nor the specific work of of circumcision in particular. And to that list of ways, he has one more thing to add, starting at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So again, in addition to saying that Abraham was not justified by works in general, or circumcision in particular, Paul makes it clear that he's not justified either by adhering to the law. Now to those who are familiar with the history of Israel, perhaps there would not have been a necessary comment to make. And that is because, as Paul points out in another letter, the Galatians, he says this, the law which came 430 years afterward, that is, after the promises made to Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the law doesn't even appear until 430 years after this promise made to Abraham. That's a long time. 
Anyone knowing Israel's history would be able to work that out. The, the lack of connection there. Clearly Abraham could not have justified himself through law keeping. But here's the question. If it's that clear and it's that obvious, why are they making the point? Why is Paul making the point? And the answer, I think, uh, without really going into it a great deal, but it's because, again, in the rabbinic literature of the day, to which I've already referred, in that literature, a number of writers had argued that even though the law did not come until centuries after Abraham lived, such was Abraham's obedience and faithfulness that he lived according to the law, even without ever having received it. That is what Jewish writers and scholars back in the day believed and taught and promoted. You might think that's crazy, but that is what was taught, that is what was believed. So Paul feels it's necessary to show, I think, that this too, law-keeping, was also not the means by which Abraham was brought into a right standing with God and could not have been brought into a right standing with God. And so in getting that across, Paul makes several supporting comments. One thing he says is that if righteousness was something that came, as through, uh, came about through adhering to the law, then the promise of God is void. And what he means is, uh, having a right standing with God as a function of law adherence, of obeying the law, is an entirely different animal than having a right standing with God that's a function of trusting in a promise of God. The two are mutually exclusive propositions. If you want to say that it comes by means of law adherence, then you have to let go of the notion of God's promises coming through faith. And then letting go of that notion is a problem because of what we've already seen. Because you have then the difficulty of explaining the explicit statements of God's word that tie God's promises to faith. It's the same argument we saw before. To believe in righteousness as a consequence of law keeping is to ignore explicit statements in scripture to the contrary. Another thing that Paul emphasizes here is that the role of the law is not meant to be, nor was it ever meant to be, a means of righteousness before God, but at, rather as a means of illustrating and confirming at least two things. One is that there is such a thing as sin or transgression, and secondly, that all people are guilty of it. Uh, all have sinned, all have transgressed against the law of God in countless ways. The third thing that Paul does is to argue essentially that right standing with God has to be a function of faith. If, uh, because if Abraham is going to be the father of many nations, that's the only way it could be. It can't be a function of law adherence. Because the law was not given to everybody in general, but to Israel in particular. And that alone would have cut the nations out of the loop. And even further, even if everyone had been given the law as Israel had, then it would have had the same consequence for the other nations as it did for them. To show that sin was real, to show that all people are sinners and incapable of achieving righteousness under their own power. So if right standing was a function of law keeping, then no one would have made it. And Abraham would have been the father of no nations. And it's precisely that situation, being the father of many nations, that Paul seems to have in view when he finally reaffirms at the end of the chapter just how it was that Abraham was justified, namely by faith. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he'd been told 
so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. As the passage makes clear, while Abraham believed God about a number of things, he left his homeland, he was prepared to sacrifice his son, it seems like the particular instance of believing that seems to be in view at this point in chapter 4 was when Abraham trusted that God really was going to make him the father of many nations. And the first step in that process was for him to at least have one child of his own. But to even believe that at his advanced age and with his wife's barrenness just seemed almost too difficult to believe. And yet he did. He believed and he acted on what was promised. He did everything he would have to have happened in order for him to become a father and his wife bear a child. And why was he willing to do that? The passage again is fairly clear. Abraham believed that God, God was fully able to do what he had promised. It was because of this conviction that his faith was counted as righteousness. That's, that's the hardest thing for any of us to believe, I think, on a regular basis, is that God can actually do what he says he can do. He will do. So when you take a step back and you look at what happened there, it's easy to see that the key element in this whole thing is not Abraham. On the contrary, the essence, the substance, the core, the ground of Abraham's saving faith is the trustworthiness of the one who is trusted. You can have great confidence that a particular branch of a particular tree can bear your weight, but if that branch is rotten, it will not bear your weight no matter how much trust you place in it. It's not the quality or worth of Abraham's faith that was the deciding factor. It was the trustworthiness of what he trusted. Namely God. And Abraham's faith as exhibited there was and remains an example of what saving faith is about for believers in every age. That's the point that Paul's driving home at the end of the chapter. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed that God was fully able to do what he promised. And people today are challenged to believe the same kind of thing, in the very same kind of way. They are to believe God. In Abraham's case, that meant looking forward to something that God had yet to do, but surely would do. In the case of believers today, it means looking back on something that God has already done. And what specifically is that? The resurrected Christ. The risen Lord. And even more specifically, we're to believe at least two things about that event. We're to believe that Jesus was delivered up, that he was nailed to that cross for our trespasses. 
He was there in our place to take our punishment. And the word for that is imputation. Our sin was imputed to Christ, credited to Him. And so He took the consequences of it for us. The other thing we're to believe is that He was raised for our justification. He was resurrected for our justification. His resurrection was proof positive that it worked. That it satisfied, that what he did satisfied the wrath of God. The wrath that he justifiably had because of our sin. And that work that Christ did on the cross, that passive righteousness is credited to us. It was imputed to us. And it results in our being brought into a right relation with God. And so this imputation thing is going in two directions. Our sin imputed to Christ, His righteousness in life and in death, imputed to us, credited to us. How is it credited? By faith. Piper uses this analogy. He says, suppose I say to my 16-year-old son, clean up your room before you go to school. You must have a clean room or you won't be able to go watch the game tonight. Well, suppose he has plans... He plans poorly and he leaves for school without cleaning the room. Suppose I discover the messy room and clean it myself. And his afternoon fills up and he gets home just before it's time to leave for the game and realizes what he's done and he feels terrible. He apologizes and humbly accepts the consequences to which I say, Son, I'm going to accept your apology. I'm going to credit you with having a clean room. Because what I said was, you must have a clean room or you won't be able to go watch the game tonight. Well, your room is clean. So you can go to the game. Piper says, what I mean when I say I credit your apology as a clean room is not that the apology is the clean room, nor that he really cleaned his room himself. I cleaned it. It was pure grace. All I mean is that in my way of reckoning, in my grace, his apology connects him with the promise given for a clean room. The clean room is his clean room. I credit it to him. So when God says to those who believe in Christ, I credit your faith as righteousness, he does not mean that your faith is righteousness. He means your faith connects you to God's righteousness. Your faith isn't meritorious. It just connects you to something that is. And that's God's righteousness. Why does God do it this way? We could talk a long time about that. Lots of reasons. But at the core, I would have to say it's this. Because in saving us by grace, through faith, and not by our working, our incurable pride is finally vanquished. It's crushed by that. Because in saving us by grace through faith, God gets all the glory. He gets every last bit of it. There's nothing left over for us to claim. Not even a shred. There's nothing there as a basis for self-exaltation, which we surely would do, given half the chance. Because by saving us by grace through faith, we can have the assurance and certainty 
of our salvation that we would never have if it was based on works. You would never feel certain about where you stood with God if it was based on anything else except faith. Because as one writer puts it, when you're lying on your deathbed, you're about to enter into glory, the thing you need to know and hear and believe and be comforted with more than anything is the knowledge that your righteousness, your right standing with God is secure for you in heaven. Because your Savior is already there. And He is your righteousness, and you are in Him. And that righteousness doesn't get stronger because your faith is strong. It doesn't get weaker because your faith is weak. It is solid, it is secure, it is absolutely perfect. Because it is in Christ. So you look to Him. You rest completely on Him. Be glad that you can't take any credit for any of it. And He will take you. He will take us all the way home on that. Let's pray. Father, sometimes it's uh, hard to talk about or think about um, doctrine as if uh, it's something that, I don't know, sometimes the impression is given it's something we ought to avoid, but all that is, Father, is a description of what's true about you and us and how we relate to you. We ought to delight in these truths, and Father, help us to do that. Because these are the truths that make the difference. These are the truths that have uh, eternal ramifications for us and for every single person we pass on the street. So Father, help us to delight in what is true about the fact that we are made right with you through faith by grace and at some point in our delighting in that Father would you remind us that Jesus has not come back and that we are regularly in the presence of many who don't know that truth much less delight in it Would you then use that knowledge to pry open our lips, to slow us down from our crazy schedules long enough to have that conversation, to ask that question, and maybe be that vehicle through which you will, and by which you'll draw others to yourself, that you will show others this amazing truth of this righteousness that you offer to people as undeserving as us. 
this forgiveness and this mercy that is there to be had. Would you please pry those words from our often stingy and stubborn lips and hearts? Help us to delight in enough, deeply enough, to move us in that direction, to give us momentum, Father, toward others. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And I'll take up an offering for those who want to support this church and various other ministries through this church.